Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn. Today, we're going to break out of our weekly rhythm of posting episodes in order to process the recent events of what took place in Atlanta, in, in which a 21-year-old white male uh, attacked three Asian-owned businesses, uh, spas in the broader metro area, killing eight people, including six women of Asian descent. When it come together and process this, as, as well as address some of the narrative uh, and discussion that has emerged in its wake about whether this was a racialized attack or, or whether it was a sexualized uh, attack based upon the stated motivations of the shooter. And in particular, we want to uh, address uh, whether this this is a false dichotomy. And joining me to address these things, we have Jennifer Guo, Grace Sangalang Ng, Dr. Josh Carroll, Brandon Hurlbert, Reverend Daniel Parham, Dr. Chris Porter, and Dr. Logan Williams. And we've asked Reverend Daniel Parham to lead us off with a word of prayer. So Daniel, would you pray for us now? Father, we come to you uh, with saddened hearts, Lord, of what we have continued to see um, in our world, a world filled with division and hatred, Lord, um, combining to deep violence and loss of life. Father, we grieve the loss of those, those lives, Lord, that were cut short um, during the shooting in Atlanta. And we grieve the hatred of the individual who is the suspect of this this um, violent crime. Lord, we know that you look upon humanity, Lord, seeking to redeem us and to set us free from the own, our own depravity, Lord, our own wretchedness. Father, I just ask that you would um, draw closer to us, Lord, more, more than ever before. Lord, our, our world is filled with chaos. And especially in light of these months of heightened racism, Lord, amongst our Asian and Asian American brothers and sisters, Lord, I pray that you would come quickly, Lord, to resolve uh, these evils and these injustices, Lord. Father, um, help us, Lord, not to have hardened hearts towards humanity uh, in the midst of the deep sin that we see. And Father, Lord, uh, we pray that the enemy would not have um, any small victory, Lord, in the way in which the church can show forth your glory uh, and your majesty, Lord, in the midst of what some might say is conflicting uh, views of your compassion, Lord, amidst the, the deep hatred that we see in this world. So we give this time to you, give our words and mind to you, Lord, that it be saturated in the Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Daniel. Jen and Grace, could we uh, hear how, how the two of you are doing in the light of everything? Yeah, so as an Asian American, I think um, just the events of these past couple of days has really hit me hard. Right now, I think my initial rage um, after what happened has kind of died down and it's kind of moved now into a deeper sadness and grief and tiredness. Um, when I found out about this yesterday, um, yeah, I was sad about it and you know, disgusted, but also I wasn't surprised, sadly to say. Um, so I have been like doing my research um, and writing my literature review for my dissertation on um, shame in response to discrimination of Asian Americans. And I've kind of been processing this and sitting with it um, this past year, especially during the pandemic with the rise of anti-Asian 
discrimination. Uh, the Stop AAPI Hate website has a report of 3,795 incidents um, from March 19, 2020 to March 18, 2021 um, of verbal harassment, physical assault that sometimes leads to death, civil rights violations, and online harassment of Asian Americans. And this came out of um, some of you know that rhetoric of the Chinese flu or the Kung flu. And there are even studies done by people showing how that rhetoric from conservative media and conservative politicians actually increased this implicit bias against Asian Americans. Um, so not only is it anecdotal, you know, from our own lived experiences, there's actually research out there that shows it. Um, not to mention like the historical uh, context of racism um, of Asian Americans you know, from the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 to the Japanese internment camps um, during World War II, the, Watson, the Watsonville riots of the 1930s where Filipinos were dragged out of their homes and beaten. Um, like this incident highlights um, a whole systemic issue of discrimination against Asian Americans. And so just having to sit in that and think that, you know, I, I, I have a fear of going out because I could be attacked at any moment or not just me, but my family, you know, my parents, um, my grandparents, like it is just really heavy to carry all of that. Grace, thank you so much. I think that you set up really well the context that a lot of people might not be aware of. I think that context is really important uh, for understanding why this incident is hitting Asian Americans so hard. It's because it was not just this isolated incident, right, where Asian Americans were killed, but it's that it is happening after a whole year of everything you described, Grace, of the documented heightened racism and violence toward Asian Americans, often with explicit epithets, like you mentioned, Grace, epithets that were used and fueled by our former president. And and yeah, and I think that's a lot of why it hits so hard. And for me, um, thank you so much for asking how we're doing, John. And thanks to the whole team for caring for us in this time. Um, for me, yeah, yesterday, which was the day after this happened, yesterday was really hard and I couldn't really do any work and I was just crying all day. And initially, I think it, initially before knowing some of the details, I think it was just, yeah, escalated senses of like fear and lament and anger and like placing this event in line with like all the other coronavirus fueled hate crimes that we've seen. But of course this hit harder because it was because of the scale in one event, like right? six people getting killed. But then later on in the day, when the details of the motivation came out um, about how the murderer had a sexual addiction and whatnot, that that actually took a very pronounced and negative turn on how I felt and how I was processing because there's an intersectionality here, right? Like once this perpetrator, this male perpetrator says, I did this because I have a sexual addiction and I wanted to eliminate the temptation now it's not just a matter of, okay, this was racially motivated because he attacked three Asian businesses and killed a bunch of Asians, but now this is 
Yeah, but like the gender thing and the sexuality thing, like all of that intersection comes in too. And at that point, it actually hit me a lot harder because coronavirus is relatively new, right? So even though the coronavirus-related violence has been really hard this past year, we've only been dealing with that and that particular fear for a year. Right? But as an Asian American woman, virtually my whole adult life, I have experienced being objectified as an Asian woman. And um, I've experienced sexual harassment where the words that are used are not just, you know, inappropriate sexually, but that they're very racist, right? With racist stereotypes and tropes of Asian in general sometimes, or like Chinese uh, racist remarks and stereotypes specifically, right? And so I think once the information about the sexual component of this crime came out, I was actually much more disturbed than I was before that came out because the experience of that component and the fear of being the target of sexual and physical violent crime because of my ethnicity, not just my gender, but also my ethnicity is a fear that I have had for a long time. And so once that came out, um, I was a lot more disturbed. Um, and, and yeah, of course, like once that piece came out, there were a lot of people who started saying things like, see, you should not have just assumed that it was racially motivated because see, he said that it was because he had a sexual addiction. It's obviously not racially motivated. And that statement is so ridiculous on so many levels that yeah, once that piece came out, everything just took a much worse turn for me in terms of how I was handling the whole thing, yeah. Yeah, Jen, I really re resonate with your your reflection there on as an Asian Australian. Uh, I don't get the American part, but as an Asian Australian, uh, you know, for my entire life, from teen from being a, a young teenager onwards, uh, we've had um, people, politicians in this country, campaigning on the basis of uh, the Asian invasion is is the common use phrase uh, that the um that the, the Chinese flood is coming. Uh, even last year, we had a, a senator um, in our parliament demand that uh, a few Asian women denounce, quote, denounce the CCP, um, which I, I don't even know what that means to denounce a political party, but and especially a political party that doesn't even exist in this country. Uh, and yet these things are seen as to be acceptable by our our culture by these things aren't really getting a huge amount of pushback uh, in many ways. And certainly my earliest memory of being engaged in, in politics or, or thinking about politics was listening to our um, a politician called by the name of Pauline Hanson and her maiden speech to parliament in 1996. And uh, remember hearing that and going, Oh, so this isn't just a construction about what it means to be Australian, but this is what it, it's a construction about what it means to be Australian. And explicitly, if you're Asian, you're not Australian. Uh, and this sort of uh, racialized discourse is so prevalent in not just in America, but across our, our, our world. Um, I was physically assaulted when I was living in the UK for being Asian. Um, and it is just uh, so insidious uh, that it, it un underwrites a lot of these sort of things, and yet when we when we get to this event here, uh, some people are already starting to come out and saying, "Well, it, this isn't racially motivated because obviously it's sexually motivated." 
Uh, and I don't know if you can, as, as you've said, the fetishization of Asian women doesn't allow that to be separated. Um, it's, this isn't just a, a sexual violence that is going on here, but it is a specifically Asian sexual violence that is going on. Uh, there was a specific race to the target uh, here. Um, and I, I think this is one of those things that the undercurrent of racialization actually uh, is then used in order to uh, dismiss it uh, because there's some, something bigger at hand. Uh, I know when we talked uh, last week um, about the uh, Sarah Everard murder and also the, the murders here in Australia, that the framework of violence against women was so front and centre here in Australia and in the UK, but in the US uh, it is clouded by things like gun violence or uh, clouded by by things in this case uh, such as sex addiction. Um, it's like the it's like these are um, test cases or or quintessential um, paradigms for intersectionality, and yet no one wants to talk about intersectionality because it becomes too complex in scare quotes. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Chris. And um, I also wanted to say that. Like this morning, I was actually listening to um, Albert Tate. He does this like daily good news today. And he was talking how like it's so easy for um, like evangelicals or conservatives to, you know, try to call out, you know, like the sin of abortion. But they're so hesitant to call out the sin of racism, even if it is so apparent, um, you know, they make so many excuses because it hits too close to home because once they call out the sin of racism, then they have to confront it and actually deal with it in their congregations and in themselves. To what you said, Grace, I think that's the saddening aspect of, right, of this continuum that we keep going down, right? It is a denial of the history of the pain of our past that one individual may not necessarily have an implication in by their own behavior, but their own complicity, right, is shown by their silence. And, and I don't think they, they, they recognize that. Um, and really, it, it's really an unbiblical concept to not remember your past, albeit uh, even the things that are hurtful about that past, because it speaks even more to the redemptive forces of God, that he could redeem you from that. So it exposes the fact that we haven't been redeemed from the very thing that we're trying to avoid, because we'd have a powerful testimony to say, look what we once were and look where, how far we've come. But when we confront that, we have to admit we haven't come as far as we should, and God has given us the ability to come as far as we could. And that's the sad aspect about this moment, right? No one should be in our country, right? No one should be surprised that this could happen. No one should be surprised because we built, uh, we basically built a playground for the idolization and fetishization and and demoralizing aspects of people of color. We've done that over and over and over again. And so people should be at the point, I, I, as, I, I sense from you both, the point of anger, not the point of just dissonance, um, because we keep drawing further and further and further away from the steps that need to be taken so that this doesn't happen again, or it is not condoned. And I think that's the, the challenge of depravity, right? The challenge of depravity is to realize that as long as this world exists, there will still be evil. But that doesn't mean we have an excuse not to refute and rebuke every form of evil that there is. Um, and I think that's, that's the pain that I, I sense is happening, right, in, in, in what we saw 
um, recently with these killings. It is, it's not that uh, it hasn't occurred. It's the fact that no one seeks to deny the, the reality. No one seeks to refute the denial of the realities in which so many of our Asian brothers and sisters face on a regular basis. I think even more that, Daniel, uh, there is now the anti-denial of those things. So there is the rise in not just um, people uh, and and the church is very complicit in this in in not wanting to confront these things, but actively denying that these things should ever be confronted. Uh, so it's not anti-racism; it's it's not even just racism, but it's anti-anti-racism uh, is now being coming the, the the paradigm for these sort of things, which is just racism. <laughs> Two negatives, right? Well, actually, I, I think I think it is. There is something different about anti-anti-racism uh, than just racism per se, because anti anti-racism comes with the presumption that that anti-racism is inherently incorrect it's not a presumption that racism is necessarily correct but it is the presumption that anti-racism is incorrect uh, and this is in australia this is often called uh, bolverism and w- where we have bolverism is this uh, trope of assuming that someone is wrong and therefore working backwards in order to figure out why or how they are wrong. Uh, so it's, a, it's an inverse of the argument, which means that it, it's actually more insidious than that because it, it's isogeting a, a reason for why people are actually wrong uh, rather than try, seeking to find an exegetical uh, pattern for that. I just uh, resonate with what Daniel said a bit too about well, a lot, but the dissonance that happens with this. I mean, for me to have to find out what's going on through a Facebook friend that's Asian American that's saying, hey, this is happening and it's not being posted on the news. There's no, even in the secular world, like we've been talking about the Christian world right now, but even in the secular world, it's not being talked about. And I was like, my buddy's buddy's saying stuff, check on your friends, this is happening. And it dawned on me where I was like, wow, have I missed something? And then, yeah, I had, but at the same time, it wasn't all over the place like it should have been. And, um, that dissonance that their secular culture has with marginalizing Asian Americans or, or marginalizing Asian Americans, I can can really see where people are confused and, and just trying to figure it out. And for Grace, you guys are talking about that. I'm sorry. Sorry that's happening. Thank you so much, Josh. Um, what you just mentioned is something that has been incredibly painful for us. You know, for us, we are seeing stories of people, you know, getting assaulted, sometimes getting murdered, like every few days, every few weeks, like we're constantly seeing these stories. And yet over the course of the past year, we very rarely saw anyone post about them except Asian Americans themselves. And it was as if no one was seeing what we were going through. No one was seeing our pain. And it just kind of reinforces something that a lot of us already felt even before COVID. And with with the recent sense of not being seen. Like there's there's a term called invisible minority as a way to describe the Asian American experience. And it, all it is is exactly what the term says is that we're not seen. And yeah, and often our experiences are discounted even when we do try to say something. And it's happening even now, right? With all the people that are saying, see, this wasn't racist, right? And saying, see, this was not racist. It's just, you know, not only discounting an aspect of what this person actually did, but also 
you know, a fundamental part of the identity of the victims. And um, there have been a few um, statements from people and a few videos where people have explicitly said, Asian American brothers and sisters, we see you, right? Or you are seen. And every time I have read or heard that phrase, I just wept because yeah, so often, and yeah, even in this most recent incident and all throughout the past year with all the escalated violence toward Asian Americans that no one talks about, like we feel so not seen. So when someone says, we see you Asian American brothers and sisters, like that is really meaningful. So that's something that might seem really small that all of you can do um, with your the Asian Americans in your lives. Like when you reach out to them, if you just say, I see you or you are seen, like it's so meaningful because of the fact that a fundamental part of our experience is feeling not seen. Yeah, Jennifer, thanks for sharing that. I just want to say that, yeah, I'm actually tearing up right now um, just after you shared that. And even yesterday, um, yeah, our two cities team, like while we were chatting, I think I just was so appreciative and felt seen um, to even have this space uh, to process. Um, To be honest, I think it was really hard for me to even ask for the space to process um, and say, you know, I'm going to take up space. Uh, Like, I think our voices need to be heard because it is something um, so that goes against how I've been raised and how society has taught me to be, you know, to just be silent. So, you know, that's a combination of some cultural things and being deferential Um, but also just internalizing the systemic racism that already exists um, that turns into shame, that turns into self-loathing, that makes me think that I'm being a burden to other people. Um, I think it's so hard for for us to even just ask to be seen and ask to take up space. So yeah, thank you for giving us um, this space and thank you for, again, for checking up on us. I'd follow that up with a how can we continue to make space for our Asian brothers and sisters? And and how can we continue to, you know, advocate for you in places and spaces that you need to be seen and heard? For me, over the course of the past 24 hours, as I've been processing and tweeting and posting about this and just trying to respond to a lot of the statements that are like, oh, this is obviously not racist, blah, 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 is that whenever a white man posted about this that was pointing out the racism and like just all of those issues. Like I just really appreciated it. And I thought that it was really helpful um, because I, I think, yeah, there's still a tendency for people to not listen to us, to discount us, to be like, Oh, you're just too sensitive and you think everything's racist and everything's about you, blah, blah, blah. But, but yeah, for me, I, some, I just always really appreciated it when I saw white men, posting about this situation and just giving reasons for why it was obviously racist. And yeah, and I, and I, I'm just really thankful for all the people who have stood in solidarity with us to like call this for what it is and to not make excuses. Yeah. I mean, I think one way um, is just acknowledging that it's there, acknowledging the racism is there. Um, That's huge, you know, because, you know, like people are debating whether this was you know, racially motivated, like, it doesn't matter what the shooter said, what his intent was, like, the fact that he went into Asian owned businesses, and shot and killed six Asian women, 
race is involved. Like it's there, race and gender. It's the intersectionality of the two, as Jennifer had mentioned. And so, yeah, just being able to say that it's there, I think is huge. And also, you know, having these intentional um, conversations of how do we decide, disciple with a race consciousness? I think Raymond Chang, he actually wrote a great article about that, how our churches are so deficient in engaging in these conversations of race and that we need to, like we need to take races, racism as a serious sin and actually help people deal with that and overcome that through discipleship, um, through taking it you know, to the cross. So these are important things that we have to discuss that I think oftentimes churches remain silent about. Grace, you just brought up um, so many things that I have such visceral feelings about. Um, when you mentioned the shooter's words, right? Like that reminded me of something else that I just thought was so messed up and so disturbing. Not just the fact that so many people were erasing the racialized component and saying, see, like it wasn't racially motivated because he said it was a sex addiction. Like that's one component that's messed up. Another component that's really messed up is how quick people were to believe the words of a mass murderer. Like, okay, so just because he said such and such, you believe it? Like you just take the words of this murderer at face value and so that was one of the things also, I mean, there are so many layers about uh, the interaction with the statement that is really, really disturbing. And then another layer that I think really dis is really disturbing is that it seems like everyone is pointing to that confession of sexual addiction to say, see, it wasn't racist. No one is saying, yeah, that's messed up too. The fact that he said he had a sexual addiction and then went and shot up a bunch of people. Like, that in itself is messed up too. And it's like, no one is pointing out what is messed up even with that, right? And they're just pointing at that statement to say, hey, it's not racist. It was a sex thing. So yeah, so now I'm just repeating myself, but like there are so many layers of things that are really messed up about how people are reacting to that statement. Yeah, and I think this is one area where we need to refuse to oversimplify things. We Yes, there is absolutely a race element here um, and it is the race element is front and center and it is a is in in our face as Asians but at the same time the there are underlying currents which have supported this race element so the the, the entire troop of and paradigm of sex addiction and purity culture uh, which has traditionally said that this is a uh, a problem with young white men and therefore but it also goes along with the fetishization of Asian and people of color and African-American bodies as exotic and as things that um, need to be, that, that white women need to be protected from. I mean, uh, Josh Grubbs and Chrissy Stroop have done some, some long research in this, but that needs to be taken into account as well. But we also need to take into account that the, these murders occurred in Atlanta. There were murders of women who are working in massage parlors in the very place that the significant evangelical leader in Ravi Zacharias has just been discredited, has just been um, shown to be absolutely flawed by his bringing in of Asian, um, uh, Asian massage parlor workers into America for sexual purposes. Uh, I don't think there is any way that these things can be deconflated. And yet uh, when we hear voices such as 
uh, the police chief who said, well, this is obviously a sexual addiction and therefore we should trust his words, uh, which, you know, by the way, to anyone who is is doesn't get the undercurrent there is he was having a the, the reason why we can trust that he was having a bad day was because he's white uh people who are white are allowed to have bad days people who aren't are not and so um there is absolutely a racial undertone there but there is this compounding and confounding of so many strands which go together here and it is as as a as an academic myself it is very tempting to tease these apart to try and analyze but you know is this about um, white supremacy? Is this about uh, racial racial violence? Is this about sexualization? Is this about uh, evangelical purity culture? Is this about a reaction to, to Ravi Zacharias and treat these as separate causes? But I think actually in a pastoral response uh, and, and in a, co- a community response, we have to refuse to that temptation. We have to treat these things as con- uh, interconnected and complex, uh, because otherwise we won't uh, be able to address root cause. It seems like this issue demonstrates really clearly why intersectional thinking is actually so crucial to understanding these kinds of events. Uh, and I think what, what Jen, Grace, and Chris, you have all pointed out is that your experiences of discrimination qua Asian Americans has been intersectional. It's It's been um, not just um, on the axis of race, but also has included other axes in tandem with that. Um, and so I think, you know, your, your anecdotes are really helpful for showing that your, your experience of, um, of discrimination, objectification has been multivaried, has been complex, has been more than just racial. Uh, and so similarly in this instance, I think that's a, a clear warrant for us to think with complexity and and with more nuance here, uh, and and not to identify um, you know one issue at, to the exclusion uh, of the other or any others. I think to speak back to the bad bad day sentiment, it is profoundly offensive to me that any individual would have the right to massacre because they have a bad day, particularly a person who is representative of a culture who has inflicted more bad days than they've had bad days. And so I, I just, I, I'm usually calm about these situations, but if it is profoundly offensive that time and again, we hear non-minoritized groups given a freedom to be heinous while the fear that has been indoctrinated about minoritized groups is that we are the ones that will respond in violent ways. And this year so far has proven that that is one of the most illogical statements and most non-experiential statements that we ever faced from January 6th to this evil now. So I just, I, I think for the church, we have to see things without rose colored glasses. How much is it going to take? How much slaughter is it going to take? And I, th- I think we, we, we demean slaughter by the numbers and the feelings of people in that day. And this is not about feelings, right? This, this is about pure evil. And how, how is the church going to be redemptive in the gospel if we can't, we can't see evil for what it is? Because the reality is, it's not that we don't see evil for what it is. We don't want to confront the evil that is within us. And it may not have shot someone, but it certainly ain't speaking up against someone who did.
And I, I, I just, I'm growing very tired on behalf of my brothers and sisters, right? And we need to see the same anger and the same dis, uh, disappointment amongst all our brothers and sisters, or we need to question what is the church and what type of redemptive voice are we gonna have in a world when we seem to be more complicit and divided and how we are able to respond to these things. So it's just, it's just really disappointing to me that I, I see you, Grace, I see you, Jennifer, I see you, Chris, angry, and I don't see people as angry with you as they should be, because in some way we've viewed our humanity different from one another. And it just, it just troubles me. It really does trouble me. Um, and I, I'm sorry. I, and I, I can't, I, I don't know what to do, but I just say I'm sorry because there's, there's so much at stake for our silence. Whenever these kinds of events are interpreted, uh, minorities and people of color are bad people and white people have bad days. So I remember in 2018, a police officer shot an unarmed black man in Tulsa. And on the, um, uh, a rec recording of, there was a recording of, of the officer's speech before he did it. And he said, that looks like one bad dude. That's literally what he said before he shot this unarmed black man. Uh, and it's amazing how like police can see black people before they do anything as a bad dude. But when a white guy goes and massacres eight people, he's having a bad day. I think also, um, uh, I really appreciated what was said by both Grace and Jen, I believe, about um, Asian Americans being the unseen minorities. Uh, I wanted to strike a contrast, and I realize this, this could be a sensitive comment, and uh, Daniel, I'd also want you, your, your feedback on this. But in the past year, multiple years, in which we've seen the uh, unjust killing, straight-up murder of um, black men, of innocent black men, we know their names very quickly. We say their names. People tell other people to say their names. We all know who Breonna Taylor is, right? Say her name. You hear that at rallies, at demonstrations. People tweet that all the time. How many of us can name the victims of the Atlanta shootings? How many, can, how many of us can name even two? I know I can't. Uh, and partly that's on me. Partly also is that there's been such a focus on the shooter to the exclusion of the victim in this instance. But in previous years, we have helpfully seen um, both a focus on not only the victim, or the not only the perpetrator and, their, and the murderers and their motives, which is important, but also on the victims and their families and the effects of these deaths. Now, I understand also that privacy is a thing, so it might be far more complicated than I'm, I'm putting it at, at present. Um, but I would hope that in um, the future months that we would know the names of these Asian American victims in the same way that we would know Breonna Taylor's name. Uh, but it is unfortunate that that seems to me in this instance to be imbalanced. And I think it does vindicate the point that Asian Americans are an unseen minority. There's been less concern for the victims in this instance from what I've seen. Thanks, Logan. Um, I, I really resonate with that. And as an, as an Australian uh, Asian who comes into America for SBL and, and other things, and I, I travel to the States uh, before COVID fairly regularly, uh, when it, whenever I'm in the, in the States, 
as a as an Asian, I am mistaken for or I'm categorized to use the technical language. I'm categorized as whichever racial minority is prevalent in the area where, where SBL is being held. So when I'm in San Diego, uh, I'm mistaken as a Mexican. Uh, I'm, some people think I'm South American. Uh, when when we're in Boston, uh, people thought that I was more Asian than I was. Uh, when we're in Atlanta, people thought that I was more Latinx than I was. You know, and this I I, I remember talking to to a Latinx friend. And um, it, it, they have the same characterization thing where it doesn't actually matter who you are. Uh, it doesn't matter what your color of your skin is because you're just a, a minority. It's a generic minority and you can just be categorized in whichever way, uh, w in whichever way is most convenient for creating an outgroup at that time. And so this is one of those areas where uh, Asians as the quote unquote uh, good minority uh, you know, we Asians tend not to speak up as much, tend not to cause as much trouble, um, according to the news media and according to the public discourse. We are categorizable as whichever outgroup uh, the majority want us to be. Uh, and this is one of those areas where it is, is very difficult um, to be within that, that frame of reference. And Grace, over to you on that point. Yeah, thanks, Chris, for uh, talking about, um, yeah, the good minority or the model minority. Um, I just also wanted to say how that model minority stereotype was actually uh, used by whites to pit us against Black people to be like, oh, look at, you know, the Asians, they're like hardworking and quiet, they're submissive. But at the end of the day, it was because of white supremacy. You know, like they they didn't want they don't want any people of color to be moving up or gaining power or having a voice. And so they use that to pit us against one another. The same paradigm as both the enemy of my enemy is my friend unless until I want them to become my enemy again. And uh, the, and uh, Sun Tzu's art of war. I mean. Uh, it becomes a divide and conquer uh, paradigm. And especially as the traditional sort of majority or culture, in this case in America, uh, white Americans become more of a, uh, a minority or become a trend towards a uh, minority in the country. Uh, this diversification of different outgroups that can be split apart such that you have multiple different um, minorities who are all separate is actually of great advantage for cultural discourse uh, to maintain uh, the white hegemony. We see it here in Australia. And interestingly, we actually see it in reverse in Asia. We see the, the minoritization of Uyghurs in China separated from, um, from Hong Kong, from Canto, from, uh, from Hong Kong Chinese. We see it separated from Taiwanese. Uh, and so there is a diversification of of different minority groups. And this just seems to be a very, very sad part of human nature. But the thing that scares me about it is not just uh, this is part of human nature, but this is part of how the, the church has operated ex more explicitly, because this is exactly what the rhetoric has been in terms of um, Christians and Jews over the, the past two millennia. And so I think we have great form, uh, if form is... Uh, and form is not necessarily a good thing. We have a strong history of 
uh, demonizing other people in order to advance uh, the Christian agenda, just as much as uh, there is currently the demonization of of Asian American uh, and, and in this case Asian American massage parlor workers in order to adv- advance a evangelical agenda of sexual purity. Man, this has been really eye opening. This has been really tough to hear just your own experiences as you've been reflecting on, you know, this for, you know, this is kind of raw. We're getting like the, you know, the unfiltered version of this full of rage, which we all need more of. And I really appreciate that. But I think one thing that um, we haven't really, well, we've, we've kind of touched about touched on it, but just that this guy was a Christian and yet he, you know, we don't want to use that. Well, he wasn't really a Christian. No, that's, that's stupid. He was a Christian who chose to inflict horrific violence. And from a Christian perspective, we, you know, believe that that's taking and destroying the image of God. And, and he's doing that willfully for selfish reasons, you know, like those memes of like, you know, a guy will literally go and do such things instead of going to get therapy. Like that wasn't an option for them. Uh, but he went and inflicted just awful violence. And he did so on the basis of race and the basis of sex and sexuality and gender. And it's been, I mean, we just had, you know, this, our gender series wrap up, you know, and I was listening to, I think I was actually listening to the episode as I was reading about what happened. And I, and I remember, you know, in that episode, I had said like, oh, you know, we, he, we know of Sarah Everard, but like how many other women how many other stories do we not know their names? And this is the same thing where I don't know their names, the people who died. And it's just that this happens more and more and more. You know, we're all aware that we live in a violent world. Um, but part of the Christian, the, the mission of the church, uh, part of Jesus' mission is to bring the peace of the kingdom uh, to this world. And so if we're, as Christians, uh, not being people of peace uh, in, in its very multivalent modes. Part of the church's mission is, is, man, is to image Christ. And you can't be imaging Christ and also trying to destroy his image in other people, um, whether we do that through violence or we do that through uh, you know, physical violence or we do that with violence with our words or our thoughts um, or any other type of uh, violence we can commit against other people. We're all we're all complicit in this and I mean, to various degrees, but, and we really need to, this is a a serious issue and we need to address it. And so I'm just so thankful for uh, your voices, uh, Jen, Chris, Grace, Daniel, I'm just thankful for your voices in this and speaking to this and yeah, letting us know what, what, what we should be thinking about this, this incident. Yeah. Brandon, I'm really glad that you just brought up, the religious component in this. And it can be circled back to some of the earlier discussions about discipleship, right? And what do we, how do we need to think about discipleship and how do we need to adjust it in light of these things? And to me, it seems so obvious that from what happened, that obviously there's something really messed up about how the church tends to think about gender like others have mentioned, especially some of the things that have come up in our gender series, like 
there are just some really messed up ways that the church tends to talk about gender and sexuality, right? And like this problem, I feel like is kind of obvious in what happened. And then obviously like racism, especially racism towards Asian Americans is just something that's not really talked about in the church. And, and I just think that, yeah, I just think it's so obvious, right? That we need to think hard about how we do discipleship on some of these issues of race and gender. And yet these are precisely the things that people are kind of ignoring, right? Including some very prominent figures in evangelicalism. And it's the same people who are doing both of these things, right? I I think that some of us saw tweets from one person who first tweeted an announcement about how the murderer said that he had a sexual addiction. And the person was like, See, like everybody should be slow to assume that, you know, it was racist, right? And then the same person later on tweeted, correlation does not equal causation, right? Basically saying, you can't assume that religion had anything to do with this heinous act. Um, hello, <laughs> if somebody posted comments saying that he loves God and guns and he shoots up a bunch of people, Right. And if somebody is supposedly very involved in church and they commit this heinous crime, like, of course, of course, his faith and the way that he was discipled played into it. Right. And so I just think it's so ridiculous that people can try to erase even like the religious component of it. Maybe it's to try to justify like Christianity, kind of, Logan, I think earlier you said something like, you know, people tend to try to say that people who do these things were not really Christian because a quote unquote really Christian would never do something like that. Whereas we have to think about what it is about the way that we are packaging Christianity that makes it possible for people to think that, for people to like believe, right? And believe they're Christians and to do these things. Absolutely, Jen. And, you know, that's that trope is so strong that we've even named an entire fallacy about it. The no true Scotsman fallacy is a fallacy for exactly that reason. Just jumping off of what Jen said, it really disappoints me that the, well, I guess, you know, it's not surprising, is it? Uh, That the pastor of so many of these, uh, you know, power, quote unquote, powerful men in evangelicalism is defensiveness instead of, you know, scrutinizing how the ways that we may be contributed to this, right? We, we can't say for certain that there are, you know, that the only thing that motivated this person was religion, right? Of course, he has reported that there's religious elements to it, but as we've noted, it's probably more complex than that. At the same time, um, given uh, the murderer's statements uh, and given what he said about the, you know, relationship between temptation and his understanding of how that, all works, his weird, deranged way of thinking about it. It's just astounding to me that the first response is, ah, well, correlation doesn't imply causation. Like, mate, like, seriously, if in light of this, you need to shut up and take a long, hard look at yourself and take a long, hard look at your own tradition and listen to your Asian American neighbors and brothers and sisters who are saying, many of whom who are saying we are scared and you have contributed to this, right? Like the fact that the first thing that people are tweeting about this is correlation doesn't imply causation is horribly straight up selfish with the result that the voices 
of those who are hurting and the voices of those who are angry and the voices of those who are having all sorts of other horrible, horrible experiences are being silenced so that you can protect yourself. Like, how straight up selfish. And the consequences of these things are quite literally life and death. So shut up and listen. Yeah, I was, I was even going to piggyback off what you were saying, Logan, because you're saying defensiveness. And I think even Daniel said it maybe better earlier when he said indoctrinated fear. So it's a deflection mechanism. It's a, I don't want to deal with this thing right in front of my face. So I'm going to deflect. I'm going to make excuses. I'm going to push it back. I'm going to do all these different things. Maybe this indoctrinated racism and all this kind of thing that's just swirling around that people in the church don't want to deal with it. So they want to push it down because it's so much easier to tell somebody to stop sinning if they're sleeping with their girlfriend or tell somebody to stop sinning if they're embezzling money and they get caught, you know, and it's so much harder as a pastor to step into relational things with people and deal with systemic indoctrinated things that are going on in their hearts that don't only, that only just affect them as individuals but affect their people around them, the community around them. And that's what we see with the systemic racism in the church. So it's easier not to deal with these kind of things. It's easier to deflect them. And it's easier to just have the dissonance that we were talking about before. And I really think it's just born out of a fear of getting real with themselves, getting real with their community, and getting real with what is happening in the world and the, the crap that the gospel really needs to apply life and truth and unity all the way through. Uh, it's sad. Just thinking about, you know, what, what's been happening and, and, you know, it was only like two weeks ago that white people were scared about Dr. Seuss getting canceled and which wasn't true at all and whatever. And Ted Cruz had that weird, whatever thing, he's going to sign Dr. Seuss green eggs and ham. I don't know. I don't care. Absolutely absurd. Ridiculous. Uh, but Dr. Seuss, the, the, the things that were, were problematic were precisely his depictions of Asian Americans and especially um, Japanese uh, Americans during World War, before World War II and in, in during around World War II and internment camps. And it was precisely these books that and these illustrations and books that kind of were reminiscent of these things that the, I think it was the Dr. Seuss Foundation itself or the, the people who held the, the, the copyrights that they were going to stop publishing just those books and white people were infuriated about this. And now two weeks later, white, a white person has gone and shot and murdered Asian Americans. It's like, the, if there's ever a correlation, I mean, I, it's right there. I mean, it's pretty obvious, but man, I, Jen, you've been saying that it, this is pretty obvious. And I think, you know, I think for us, yeah, yeah. You know, we've been talking about this for, for some time now, but I think for so many people, we're just so many white people. We're just waking up to this reality, and man, we need to to hear more of these stories and hear more uh, and see more of the reality of just how much hurt and uh, and yeah, just how much hurt is out there, and how much we you know don't need to be defensive of it, but we can, as Daniel said, we can own it and we can move forward, and that the path to repentance starts with you know repenting. <laughs> it's pretty clear. We need to, you know, move forward and we move forward by hearing and listening and <laughs> shutting up, as Logan said.
where I remember a little while ago when Disney updated the, uh, I guess the, the content warnings on the front of a lot of their classic movies. Um, a whole bunch of people really objected to, uh, I think it was Lady and the Tramp and the Aristocats having, uh, you know, content warnings because there was, um, in their words, quote unquote, Asians in it. And, and I just remember thinking, well, of course you don't see that this is anti-Asian sentiment because you're not Asian. You didn't get, you know, spend years of being teased at school for um, trying to play the piano uh, with your fingers and not chopsticks. Um, like these, these troops that are set up in our media uh, so permeate and they permeate not just from as adults. They start the, their permeation with three-year-olds and four-year-olds and five-year-olds who imbibe the, this sort of media without necessarily thinking about the content that they, they don't even have the categories to think about the content that they are watching. Uh, it's just a funny cartoon. Uh, and then as a, a five-year-old being sorted, you know, like the, with the sorting hat into um, which musical instrument we should play, as an Asian, we're always told you need to play the piano and all the other kids go, and where's your chopsticks? The pervasiveness of these sort of tropes and stereotypes uh, goes right, right the way back. Yeah, so um, an article that I recently also read by Michelle Reyes, um, she just talks about how um, as Asian Americans, how do we respond um, to incidents that happen like this and how uh, Jesus, he understands what it's like um, to be marginalized and to be oppressed and to suffer um, injustice. And because he understands that, how we in our experience can go to him. Um, so I think that was really powerful for me um, to read and to be centered in that truth, to know that, you know, Jesus sees me, he understands my experience, and he fights for me um, and with me. And I think um, just moving forward as a church, Asian Americans can know that God sees us and values us and that our voice matters. Um, and then those who are not Asian American, you know, yeah, to sit with um, your brothers and sisters who are um, Asian Americans and to be able to incarnate that love of Christ and that presence of Christ to us, I think can be so powerful. Well, thank you all for this uh, very powerful discussion. Very much uh, appreciated hearing from all of you. And I want to especially uh, thank Jen and, and Grace for, for showing up and taking up space uh, and, and allowing us to, to hear from you all and, and, to, and to learn from you. And I uh, just want to say that, that we see you and uh, we appreciate you guys. Yeah, thanks so much, all of you, for your voice.